Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, Well, welcome, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Anna said, uh, we are a community of faith that believes no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. We have been in the middle of a series uh, that we've been calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. And uh, it's been a really fun series. Um, Basically, there's been a lot of conversations. I don't know if you've been alive uh, in the last couple years, but if you have, there've been a lot of conversations about uh, politics and uh, the role the church plays. And so we wanted to examine that. We don't wanna be a community that shies away from tough questions. So what Anna was saying, if you have really hard questions about the faith, ask them. We're not a community that shies away from that stuff. We wanna push into it. And the reason why is because we do believe that Jesus offers us and his followers a way forward. When we talk about politics, uh, quite simply, all we mean is it deals with how we live. Um, There's no such thing as being a a apolitical person. Politics is just looking at a shared vision for how a community organizes itself and pursues what it believes to be the best good, the best way of living. And so when we're saying, what are the politics of Jesus? We're asking, what does he say is the best form of living, the best way of life? And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's totally fine. You get a ringside seat and you get to call us Christians out when we're not living according to our, to our leader, basically. So uh, that's like the best of both worlds. Go get a cup of coffee and get comfortable. Um, and so what we've been doing, what we've been doing in the last couple of weeks is we've talked about structures of Cain. And that comes from the Cain and Abel story, uh, where if you don't know it, essentially they're two brothers. Uh, they have a little bit of a, of a religious uh, disagreement, uh, not really between the brothers, but between each of them, they each bring an offering to God. And um, God receives well Abel's offering, but not Cain's, because uh, Cain brings uh, not the best of his, of his produce, but he brings sort of like a second-tier offering. Cain en- ends up killing his brother Abel, and then God asks, where's your brother Abel? Abel? And Cain goes, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And what we've been looking at is sort of making the case that uh, all human versions of politics, the ways we live, are premised off structures of Cain, a heart of Cain, which says I'm not my brother's keeper, which says I'm gonna do violence to to others in order to protect what I have. And more specifically for us in the West, because we fear death. But for us who are followers of Jesus, the premise of our people, the, the core of who we are, is the story of Jesus, who was killed and was raised to life again, according to his followers and according to those who received his spirit. According to me, I believe that he was raised to life again. Therefore, we're not afraid of death. Because in a sense, we're already dead is the claim we're making. It says that throughout the New Testament and all the Paul's writings. For us who follow Jesus, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're, we're not holding on to our lives. Uh, a famous church historian who was actually, he was a pagan before he became a follower of Jesus, Tertullian. He has this famous line where he goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he means by that is you look at, especially the first 300 years of Roman, uh, of, um, of the, the church in Rome, they're constantly persecuted, Christians are, and they're constantly killed. 
They're killed in, in the Colosseum and other events, and they never fight back. They're not bad citizens. They're really good citizens. They pay their taxes. They take care of the sick and the unwanted. Uh, they're really great citizens, but they're also, they also refuse to participate in structures that dehumanize people or that hurt people, that commit violence against people. And for that, they are killed. But because they don't fight back, but instead love and bless, there's something really radical about who these people are. What, what do they see? What do they know that the rest of Rome doesn't know? Because Rome is terrified of death. America, we're terrified of death. We're terrified of pain, but not, not followers of Jesus. We're following him. So what we're looking at in this part of uh, the series is we're examining various areas, industries, sectors in our society, and we're asking the questions, where are there structures of Cain present? Where are there structures that commit violence? And that's actually a really important point that I forgot to say. Uh, for us in the West, it's easy to look at the Cain and Abel story and be like, hey, I'm not a violent person. I don't commit violence against my neighbor. What we've failed to realize is that our society is structured, not that we're not violent, but we've sort of abdicated our violence to the state. We've transferred our collective right to violence, right to self-protection to the state or to the market or technologies. So our violence has become more impersonal now. So yes, I don't lift up my hand and strike another person, but I do participate in certain structures where I reap tremendous benefits and they do not. So in a sense, I'm still committing violence. So what we're looking at, as for us who are followers of Jesus, is how can we name those? And how can we, like the first Christians did, imagine an alternative way of life, a different way of living that invites all people, all people, no matter where they are in structural systems, invites all of them to the table of God and says, you are welcome here. You're loved here. Let's follow God and be transformed into his image together. So we're looking at these various sectors and industries and asking those questions. How can, um, where are their structures of Cain present? And then where are we as uh, the people of Jesus, the people of Jubilee, where are we able to imagine alternatives? And today we wanna talk about good old healthcare. Y'all ready to solve healthcare in the next 20 minutes? Let's do it, right? Yes. Um, let's pray first though, all right? We're gonna pray. So will you join me? Lord, I'm reminded of the line where it says, the people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. What you did with your church, Jesus, when you said, it's good that I leave you, when you're talking to your disciples, you say, it's good that I go away because I will send you the advocate. I will send you my spirit. My spirit will live within you and will lead you into all truth. What you did is you, you created a people that is able to exist anywhere in any nation. And we're able to be good citizens, but we're able to invite people into another way of life. And it's a tough invitation. The world doesn't want it because we're testifying that there is violence in the world. There's hatred. But we, we as your people, we as those who have said, I will go whatever comes and I will follow you. 
you reveal to us what it means to be the people of Jubilee, to follow you well. And for, for whoever's in this room, Lord, and we know there are all sorts of people in this room who, who know you, who don't know you, who have questions about you. I have questions about you, many. Would you say that the whole point of this story is that the questions don't stop, but we've tasted your love. We see in your story something that strikes a chord at the deepest place of our hearts, and therefore we trust that you have the words of life. We wanna follow you. There's never been a story like yours, Jesus. There's not been anything that has utterly changed the world historically like your story. It is absolutely insane in every level. And yet I look at it and I say, it's true. It's true. You're still overturning the world. You're still overturning empires and inviting us into a family. And so would you be in our midst today, Lord, Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is open for you to speak. It's in your name. Amen. All right. We're going to look at a pretty popular story uh, called The Good Samaritan in modern parlance uh, in order to discuss healthcare. So Jesus is talking. He's telling a story. He's talking to other Jewish Pharisees. And this is what he says. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, the context of this passage is really important for us as we consider it. To back up just a little bit, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, experts in the law. He's talking to pastors. He's talking to those who know the law of Israel really well, who know the way of life that God is inviting them into. They know the way of life. And so he's having a conversation with them. And he's asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Sum it all up. There's way too many of them. What is the greatest commandment? And he answers with a very famous passage of which any um, faithful Torah observing Jew would know. It's called the Shema, which means hear, listen. And it comes from Deuteronomy, and he goes, the greatest commandment is this, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's the Shema. And we even see that the 
the remnant, I mean, Jesus is saying it, so it's for us as well. What were we created for? Where do we come most alive? When we are loving God, when we are connecting with our creator, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus does something else. And he goes, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he adds something. If you were with us a couple weeks back when I talked about the Jubilee, you'll remember this, where he said, you, you, Jesus cares intensely about justice, about equality, about making sure that we all have fair opportunities to, to thrive, to flourish. But we said, you can't get justice without Jesus. They come hand in hand. And you can't get Jesus without it coming in a life that seeks justice. Love God with all you have and love your neighbor. The two go hand in hand. And then the expert in the law did, he made a mistake. He made a mistake. It says that he wanted to justify himself. And wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus gives this story. There are echoes of Cain's question, aren't there? Am I my brother's keeper? With that brother, that sister, am I the keeper here? Who's my neighbor? Just, just let me know who exactly I'm responsible for and I'll do it. Uh, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton's famous quip where he goes, I'm convinced this is why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself and not love humanity as yourself. Humanity is abstract. It's everyone and therefore it's no one, right? We make humanity in our image. But your neighbor, that is very specific. Your neighbor lives above you and below you and beside you. Love that person as yourself. You can't wiggle out of that. And I think it's this question, who is my neighbor, that most often keeps us from being jubilee people, from being a follower of Jesus. But here's the first thing I wanna say. From a Jewish perspective, uh, the Levite and the priest in this story, they kind of have a point. They do. Within the law, the Torah, there are cultural and religious stipulations for how they are to live in order to maintain cohesion in the community. And one of those stipulations is you don't touch blood. Blood makes you impure. If you are a Levite and a priest, basically that's another way of saying these are the pastors of Israel. They're like the highest of highest. You're not supposed to touch blood. That's a law that God gave Israel. It defiles you. It makes you impure. So they're kind of following God here. I don't know if you were ever like this. In my house, I was the middle child of three brothers, which is the worst. Any middle child in the room? Yes, the worst. The eldest is beating you up. The youngest is telling on you. It's lose-lose. Like you can't get out of this. You can't get out of this. But often, I mean, my mom, my mom and dad, we had rules, right? Like, and some of the rules in our household were don't lie. Tell the truth. But we were also told don't tattletale either. Don't tattletale. And this would always happen where my brother would like do something to me. My mom wouldn't see, right? He would punch me or drown me in my lucky charms. That actually happened one time. Um, I'm just kidding. No, no, it happened, but he wasn't drowning me. He held me there for enough amount of time that I knew he was the boss and then he let me up, all right? <laughs> I love you, Matthew, if you're listening then. Um, but it, my mom would say, don't lie, don't tattletale. And my brother would do something, mom wouldn't see, and she'd come up and be like, what happened? And I'm like, I'm stuck, I don't know what to say because I can't lie to her, but I'm looking in my brother's eye and I see that snitches get stitches. Like I see it in his eye, I see it. So it's like they're both true, 
I don't want to lie to my mom. I don't want to tattletale on my brother. I definitely don't want to get beat up again. What do I do? There's kind of some of this happening in this story. The Levite and the priest, they're following the law. And it's not arbitrary. God gave it to them. Moses gave it to them. They're following the law. We ask questions like, how do we fund health care for people who aren't American citizens? Who pays for it? How do we fund health care for those who live differently than me? Are they my neighbor? And I want to be clear. Those are good questions. And Jesus is not answering in this story how we fund health care for 370 million people. He's not answering that question. Okay? Those are good questions. Important questions. The Levite and the priest are obeying cultural laws. But Jesus is doing something different in his response. And the reason he's doing something different is because he hears something in the voice of the guy who asked him. And you know what he heard? We already said it. Attempting to justify himself. He was trying to justify himself. I want to submit to us, submit to myself, that often when I ask questions to Jesus, it's not because I'm actually willing to hear an answer that challenges me. It's because I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to protect myself. What is justification? Justification is just, I want to know exactly what's expected of me and no more. Tell me what the minimum standard is of righteousness so God won't be angry at me and I'll do that and no more. But what does that mean? It means I fail to see people, I fail to see my neighbor, who am I actually looking at? Myself. Because it's all about me doing exactly what's expected of me. So the question in this, when he's trying to justify himself, saying, who's my neighbor? He's not actually concerned with who his neighbor is. He's concerned about himself. He wants to know what's expected of him. And Jesus sees right through it. This, another term, a modern term for this would be dehumanization. It's part of the process that can perpetuate structures of Cain because it's easier to do or allow violence to happen when people aren't actually people. When I'm not actually seeing them, I'm just seeing myself. I'm seeing what's expected of me. And so they pass by, the, the Levite and the priest, they pass by on the other side, which can also be a form of violence if we fail to see and act and respond. According to Jesus, that's breaking the greatest commandment to love God and love your neighbor. Now again, let me be abundantly clear. Jesus is not telling us in the first century Judean world how 21st century Americans can make healthcare work. He's not telling us that. That's not the question he's answering. But for those who follow him, he's also not allowing us to throw our hands up in the air and say it's too big a problem to solve. He's not allowing us to throw our hands up in the air as a defense to justify ourselves, to, to hedge ourselves, and to fail to see our neighbor who lives in our city, who lives next door to us, who lives at the bodega down the street. He's not allowing us to throw our hands up and fail to see people. He's not allowing us to dehumanize others. And Jesus' answer, the story he tells, is absolutely remarkable. Because notice, he's talking to a room full of Jews. So when he says a man goes and falls into the hands of robbers, 
that man is presumably a Jewish man. So a Jew is hurt. And the two people who pass by are presumably the best kind of Jews, the Levites and the priests. They are faithful, they know the law. But the one who stops is a Samaritan. I talked about this briefly a couple weeks back, but suffice it to say, Samaritans are the hated of the hated for the Jews. They are the worst sort of people. This is the person, the person who stops is most certainly, from a Jewish perspective, not my neighbor. <laughs> most certainly, it's not even a question. So the fact that Jesus brings him in, it would have stunned him. Because we're not even talking, we're talking about how, who's my neighbor among the Jewish people. And Jesus brings in a Samaritan who's definitely not my neighbor. I'm not responsible for them. They are of that community, of that nation, of that lifestyle, which is not my community. And the extent to which the Samaritan cares for this Jewish man, he bandages him, he gives him oil and wine, he puts him on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, he treats him, and he says, if there's more cost, charge it to me. Jesus is make, going above and beyond to show that this Samaritan is paying an exorbitant amount for this Jewish man who hates his guts. Check that, guys. Jesus does not say the guy who's robbed is the Samaritan, which would still be uh, astounding, but it'd make more sense. The Jew would think, oh, okay, the Samaritan is hurt. I need to show love there. Jesus is saying that the hero of the story, the one fulfilling the greatest commandment, is not the Levite or the priest, but the Samaritan. He's flipping it on its head. So imagine that person who hates you and you really can't stand either. And you're also pretty sure that God doesn't like them. You have an under good, good authority that he probably doesn't like them either. Imagine them and then imagine that Jesus makes them the hero of this story to challenge you. You're gonna be thrown off. The one who wants to justify himself by saying, who's my neighbor? But he doesn't really care who his neighbor is. He just wants to know what's the minimum standard. And at the very end, Jesus asked him, which one of the three is the neighbor? And the guy goes, he doesn't even say the Samaritan. You notice that? He goes, I guess the one who showed mercy. I guess they're capable of showing mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and be like a Samaritan. It's astonishing. This guy is doubly shamed. For he was trying to justify himself, to figure out how far he had to go and no further. And Jesus gives an example of limitless care. Limitless care, no matter what the cost is. He says he basically privileges love of neighbor, love of God and love of neighbor above any other cultural stipulation. And then the example of such care, the one who fulfills the commandment is the most hated and least likely to be the neighbor. Jesus is drawing the sphere of community as wide as it can possibly go. Hey, you wanna know who your neighbor is? <laughs> everyone, which I realized earlier that makes it no one, but everyone. There's no one outside the scope of who you are charged as a follower of Jesus to see, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, to see and to provide care. They are your neighbor, and they have something to offer us too. 
That's what Jesus is getting at here. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So now at this time, as we've been doing, I want to invite up. So just if you're here for the first time, what we do is provide a little theological uh, foundation. And then I want to invite up experts from our community to help us consider it further. So today, when looking at healthcare, uh, we are bringing up Dr. Keith and Dr. Sharon Chu. Can we give it up for them? They are phenomenal people. Uh, if you don't know them, you need to get to know them. And what they're going to do is they're going to help us explore uh, a bit more of uh, what these structures of Cain might look like in the healthcare industry and, um, and how we can be people of Jubilee and imagine alternatives. Um, and I think Manny might be coming up as well. Can we give it up for Manny? Yeah. All right. Awesome, awesome. Great. So thanks, guys. We're, we're separated by the table this Sunday, but we're still here in spirit. Um, <laughs> ironic. Um, so the first question, like we've been doing for all of them, is as, as doctors, um, where have you guys seen dehumanization in healthcare? Uh, where have you seen these structures of Cain uh, that aren't willing to answer who is my neighbor in the widest sense possible? So we're going to tag team here. Um, I'm going to take this first question. Um, so the healthcare system is super complicated, and there's no way that we're going to be able to break it all down for you guys today. Uh, but we're going to try to get you a, a little bit of a taste of um, the disparity or uh, like the structures of Cain as uh, Russ talks about. Um, if you can just put up the first slide. So basically at this point, the United States, you know, we're doing really bad in healthcare <laughs> <laughs> compared to other developed nations. Um, if you can see, this is basically, this is actually old data, but things have not gotten any better. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find a chart that explained it as well as this did, but um, so on, um, I really liked all the graphs that Trey did last time, so I tried to, let's see if I can break it down like he did, but on the x-axis, uh, which is the bottom, you see how much money we're spending on the healthcare, and uh, the farther to the left is more money, and then on the y-axis you see how long we're living, um, and the higher up is the longer we're living. So technically you would want to be spending less money and living longer, right? So um, the United States is all the way on the corner because we're spending a lot of money, but we're nowhere close to um, how well other countries like Japan and other Western European countries are doing. Um, and this has actually gotten a little bit worse. We're spending uh, more money now and maybe ha are living just a little bit longer. So, um, so in order to really understand about healthcare, you have to understand where, who is able to access healthcare. And that depends on two things. Either you have to have health insurance or you have to be pretty rich to be able to pay out of pocket 
the cost of healthcare. Um, so when we think about, um, can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Right, so. <laughs> yes, the troubled person in the middle trying to figure out the system. Um, so who are the people who can get insurance? Usually in the United States, in order for you to qualify for health insurance, you have to be employed uh, because your health insurance comes from that. Um, things changed a little bit in the last few years, but it's still pretty much set up that way. Um, either you have to be employed or you have to be very much below the poverty line and that's the Medicaid system, or you have to be an elderly uh, or um, a disabled person and you would qualify for Medicare. So there's different ways to access that. And all of those things actually have their own limitations and are not perfect at all. Uh, but you can access healthcare if you have insurance based on that. Um, so even the ones who do have access, it's very difficult for them to access healthcare, um, even with insurances. I'm not sure how many of you guys have interacted with the healthcare system, but as physicians, uh, we have to fight a lot for our patients to get access to medications. Uh, if we think that they should have a certain imaging done, sometimes we need permission from the health insurance companies to do that. So even having health insurance has its limitations. Um, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get access. And most of the time, they don't guarantee payment. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have ever gotten those letters where it says, just because we approved this doesn't mean we're going to pay the bill. <laughs> and you have to figure out, uh, wait and see what happens, pretty much. Um, and then there are those who are completely uninsured. Um, and so who are these people? You would think that it's, um, it's actually those who are really, really poor, which would be the homeless, or those who have mental health issues and they're not able to figure out a very complicated system and how to access that system, or it's the undocumented or immigrants who don't have papers to be able to access services. And sadly, it's people who are working part-time or have one person in the household who's working and they don't qualify for health insurance or they're working um, under the table where they, the companies don't have to give them health insurance because technically they're not in their um, part of their payroll. Um, so the uninsured definitely are people who we, as uh, you termed, like can, can pass by and ignore because they don't have access to healthcare, so it's hard to provide healthcare for them. Um, but there's also the concept of the underinsured. So there are people who have insurance who cannot access or don't want to access because they're co-pays or they're deductibles. This is the money that uh, you have to pay before you can even access, um, have the insurance company pay your bill. So you will be paying for your insurance, but you still have to pay a copay. You still have to pay a deductible before you can even get to a point where um, your bills will be covered. And so a lot of people use or allow that to be a reason as a barrier for them to access healthcare. Uh, so what does poor access um, to healthcare even, like why does it even matter if they can access healthcare or not? Um, well, it definitely shows that you are worse in your health if you're not accessing healthcare because you're not using preventative services, you don't know how well you're doing. So by the time 
you're really sick and you end up going to the hospital, you're getting a late diagnosis. Uh, the cancer's too far spread, your high blood pressure, or you've already had a heart attack, you've already had a stroke, and so it makes it hard um, for you if you don't have access to healthcare. And it also creates a lot of disparity. So the next slide, please. Um, so uh, it's really difficult to talk about all the disparity in healthcare. It ranges in all fields, but a lack of access to healthcare leads to inequality because there are people who do have access and are doing really well um, in their health, are going to the doctor, getting all the lab works done so they're able or getting all the medications that they need and they're able to access that. But then there are those who can't. And so what ends up happening is a disparity or inequality. And I particularly uh, wanted to present this because it's a pretty stark difference. So this is HIV or AIDS diagnosis and death rates per 100,000 among teens and adults by race and ethnicity. Um, so the, it's hard to read it, but uh, the three categories are the diagnosis rate, the AIDS diagnosis, so once you have AIDS, that's considered a late diagnosis for where we are right now um, in terms of all the development and the treatments that we have to, to protect people from getting AIDS. Um, and then HIV death rates, is once you have the infection, you can also die from it. So the, the big bar that you're seeing up high is in black Americans. Um, compared to all the other races. And one of the reasons for this is uh, that um, one of the groups that's uninsured is usually young adults. And um, in this case, it's also men who have sex with men and are not um, accessing the healthcare for various stigma reasons or um, because they, they don't feel that they can access healthcare as easily. So, I wanted to just present this to say that there is a lack of access leads to disparity and, and inequality in our system. So I also wanted to look at what the current rates of uninsured are, which is uh, the next slide. Okay. So uh, people might have opinions about the Affordable Care Act, which came out. It's also, some people know it more familiarly as the Obamacare. Um, so this pre pretty much presents like how we were doing um, in our uninsured rates. And our uninsured rates were very high until um, the Affordable Care Act was passed and the rates started coming down and we were doing well and then it was repealed and now our rates are climbing back up. So right now about 27 uh, million um, Americans don't have insurance and the rates are climbing on that. Um, so this shows that the lack of insurance um, is going to, I mean, there will be a greater amount of people who are not going to be able to access health care. And one of the reasons why this is all happening is because of this concept that Russ has been talking about, self-preservation. Uh, we, as the health insurance companies, their job is to protect their bottom line, and um, they're trying to do that, and so they don't allow for access to certain healthcare um, for certain people. Um, but what about the physicians? You know, what about the healthcare providers? Like, why aren't they taking care or doing the work? Well, we're pretty much under the mercy of the health insurance in, in terms of uh, our ability to make um, a living. So if you look at how, and I just wanted to share a little bit about that, 
the next slide, please. Um, so physicians are pretty much coming out, and this is also true for um, other healthcare providers like nurse practitioners and stuff as well. So but, uh, this was particularly focused on physicians. Uh, when we come out of becoming doctors, we're coming out with debts of more than $200,000. I mean, um, and when you're, especially those who are serving um, the underserved population, end up having to deal with a lot of barriers that our burnout rates are pretty high. And that can, is also contributed with just the way that the healthcare delivery system is set up. So physicians are burned out, about half of us, we, uh, this is per 2019 data, are consider themselves burned out. Or there's depression as well as those who are clinically depressed or suicidal. So um, that puts us in a place which makes it hard for us to care for, for others. Also the way that the system is set up, it's hard for any kind of reimbursement. If, if we wanted to serve those who were um, considered underinsured or uninsured, uh, there's you would have to rely on out-of-pocket payments or even the Medicaid system does not provide reimbursements for, um, like the amount of money that they reimburse you for is very little, um, where you would not be able to keep your doors open as a private uh, practitioner. So there are systems set up to care for those who have Medicaid and stuff, but for uh, the barriers that providers have to deal with are very difficult for them to access. So this is pretty much how the system is set up, and I didn't even go into like the hospital systems and all of the issues there, but um, there, there you have it, we're broken. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome, so now Keith's gonna come up, and uh, he's gonna talk to us more, and I just wanna be clear, like when we talk about uh, the politics of Jesus, we're, and I, I forgot to mention this early on, we're talking about what Jesus is inviting us into, independent of how it might affect the nations that we live among. Now, to be sure, if we're doing it right, it will. But we wouldn't expect any nation to answer, who is my neighbor at the widest possible uh, sphere possible. That's for us who call Jesus Lord. We answer it that way. Um, so a lot of this data, though super disheartening, is expected uh, for people who doesn't know God and people who, who wants to preserve uh, uh, what they have. So that's expected. So then, that all being true, Keith, um, about these structures of Cain, uh, where have you seen people of Jubilee who have entered into these spaces, into these structures, and started answering the question, you are my neighbor, all are my neighbor? Where have you seen imaginative alternatives uh, to provide care for people? So um, when I was uh, thinking about this question, um, this is my slide. <laughs> um, and I think, it was, it was hard because it was like, I kept wanting to think about something big, like what's this great program, what's this great thing that's making a lot of change, there's a lot of research on, it's sort of my medical side, um, that demonstrates the effects on how it's changed and brought, you know, like access to care that's seeing, you know, that's sort of seeing the neighbor in the widest scope possible. And I had a very hard time thinking about it. Um, as I was thinking about it more, um, particularly last night, and sitting here in worship, and listening um, to j just um, to the story again of um, the Good Samaritan, it really is a much more like smaller perspective. 
is we talked about dehumanization. And I think that changed my, that helped me to think a lot more. And I started getting a lot more ideas on where I've actually seen either glimpses of that jubilee or like individuals or small programs that are really making a difference. Um, uh, also a disclaimer is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a family doctor. I work outpatient medicine just in an office. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Um, I work um, in an outpatient office and I work at a community health center and that sort of shades um, my perspective. Healthcare is huge and we're by no mean experts in the whole system and there's certainly a lot of people who are doing great work and we don't always see that. Um, so first off, I think um, community health centers do do um, some important work. And if you're familiar with community health centers, this is like what we call a federally qualified community health center. They have specific um, sort of principles where they're supposed to be, they can only be set up in certain areas, areas of high need. Um, they're supposed to provide care for people no matter what, whether they have insurance, ability to pay, whether they're documented or undocumented, and things like that. Um, and they're supposed to be more comprehensive in the type of care and sort of understand that being able to access healthcare is complex, as Sharon was talking about. Um, and that has been helpful. Anybody who's worked in healthcare or has people who've been in healthcare know it's difficult. It's difficult to care for individuals who maybe don't speak the right, the same language. And it takes a long time to translate or you have to find staff to do that who can access um, medical care. I always talk about how it's been very common for me to find that people don't know what a, ref what a refill is on a prescription. You know, and how many times I have to explain to patients what a refill is. And you can just imagine, if they don't know what a refill is, how many more other difficulties are they gonna run into in just navigating this, this really complex healthcare system? And um, so community health centers are more set up to, to, to help in those regards. And they're certainly not perfect by any means, but they do, I, I have been able to help a lot more people in that environment with that support. And certainly, again, there are a lot of private doctors who do the same thing in their own offices across the country. Um, so that's not to say anything about the work that a lot of many individual doctors do. At all. <laughs> yeah, just step a little closer. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm like right in the, uh, okay. Um, so maybe I just have to talk louder, so. Um, but, in community health centers, I was thinking a little bit more as Russ was talking in, in worship, that it's also about, there's something more than just providing care, because you can provide care to, you know, to individuals who um, don't have access to health care. But there's certainly a dehumanization thing, and how much are you really connecting with the individual? And when I've seen like glimpses of that in a lot of times in places where I've worked, where the team works together, where the, where the person in the reception is definitely, you know, ch you know, taking the brunt of people's complaints that is often from other external factors, but being gracious to them. When my medical assistant knows the family and the patient almost better than I do, and they're calling her like Dr. Luce, even though she's not a doctor, 
when my nurses are taking, uh, have just like really taken such ownership. So they are not saying, oh, this is your job, but it's like my patient and referring to them as my patient. When I've seen us work together as a team in those types of environments and when I've seen other people do it, that is what I think is beautiful. It's like people working together to do the work of the Good Samaritan for healing. And that I think is, is beautiful. Um, one place where I've definitely seen that or, or like is there's a group of, um, there's a thing called uh, CCHF, um, Christian Community Health Fellowship, which is sort of just a community of healthcare professionals that are committed to living out the gospel through healthcare among the poor. And uh, certainly Sharon and I have uh, a lot of the way we've grown in our heart for medicine was shaped through that organization. And just getting together and hearing the, other, the work that people have done has been very encouraging to us and helped shape the way we view our vocation and how can we use what we do in, in, in medicine to sort of bring shalom and, um, and then also to see it in the widest perspective, like to try to you know, help with disparities or injustice and things like that. Um, in, one, in particular, I remember we went to one, one conference and Sharon and I met um, the COO of a community health center in Buffalo, New York uh, called Jericho Road. And he was there along with um, another one of his doctors um, who wasn't Christian too. And it was really great to hear the, the story of that health center through the perspective of this non-Christian doctor who was there. Um, and he was just talking about how much the community, how they work together, um, how they care for each other, and how they're really reaching the refugee populations in, in Buffalo. Buffalo gets a lot of refugees. And, and so in terms of how much they work to get um, translators for, for the people, how they created other um, organizations, like on the side, they realize their needs for these refugee populations, creating shelters for them, um, English as second language programs, um, creating um, stop-in centers to help people, like a resource center for, for the refugees. Um, they even, their patients of them who are coming from refugee populations who wanted to know how they could help their, like the healthcare situation in their own countries. And they've actually, those, they helped those individuals, those former patients of theirs get trained on how to go back to their own country to develop health clinics and health offices over there, um, which is pretty amazing as well. And so I think that, that that place was a great example of what we're talking about in terms of seeing our neighbor in the widest perspective possible, even so much as going back to their own countries. And so I think, so that, that's, one that's, that's one real big example that I want to talk about. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of, there, there's a lot of, well, I'll, I'll mention one other thing. Um, I was uh, listening to a podcast recently on, from On Being um, on NPR. And one of the persons, the guests on that particular episode was a doctor named Abraham Verghese. Um, so he's an infectious disease doctor. He's written a couple of uh, uh, well-known books like Cutting for Stone, 
or my tennis partner. Um, some of you may or may not be uh, familiar with that. Um, he, they were talking a little bit about success, um, but they were also talking about he's doing this thing called the Presence Project, and talking about how how it was the way I'm sort of paraphrasing it is that there's a lot of dehumanization, depersonalization in medicine, and we talk about oftentimes through our training, the patient become the individual who has a particular context and a family and a name, becomes like the appy in bed bed three, you know, or we talk about the complication, we lose sight of the person. And so he was talking a lot about how that also takes a, a toll not only on the individuals and the families, um, as we have, you know, depersonalized and like people just feel like a number or they don't really feel the care of a, of a doctor or a nurse or anyone in the healthcare system. And so, I think he was talking about how they can work, and he's talking to people in Stanford about how they can bring presence back into medicine and how important it is. And I think that type of work is really important. And the more that we can do that, the more that even, you know, if you have a family member who's in medicine, just to talk with them about their stories and figure out how they can bring presence back into their work, um, it brings meaning back into it. It, mean, it brings connection. It brings like this ability to see um, the bigger picture and what we're trying to do um, in medicine. Um, cool, awesome. Um, and before we get to, yes. We got one final question, but I wanna go ahead and invite the band back up um, before we come to the table. Because um, our question is, for us who are non-healthcare people, uh, we're not involved in that system, how can we as followers of Jesus be the people of Jubilee? Like, what are our next steps? And we've been thinking about this uh, in our community uh, and, and uh, as it relates to a personal step, as a social step, and as a structural step. Um, so what would you guys say? What are, what are our personal steps, our social steps, and our structural steps as Hope Brooklyn, as followers of Jesus, um, as it relates to this topic? So the story of the Good Samaritan, it started off with the verse about um, well, what, what do I do to have eternal life? And one of the parts he says is uh, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this is kind of counterintuitive, uh, but it is important as a personal step that uh, we thought that actually caring about yourself. So like what are some things you can do to pursue your own health, because it's important for you to care for yourself if you're gonna be caring for your community or your neighbor. So um, I would encourage each of you to think about like what are some things that you can do, one thing that you haven't been thinking about or ignoring, whether it's not getting enough sleep or um, not spending enough time exercising or thinking about what you're putting inside your body in terms of food or taking too much caffeine, which is a problem that most doctors have. Um, so like, what are some things you're doing to pursue your own health? We would encourage you to, to think about that. Um, there was another slide. I don't know if you can. Uh, Go back one more. Um, so sort of in 
Another thing that we are thinking is that there is a concept called social determinants of health. And it's basically the idea that your health is also related with a lot of other factors. I'm not sure if you can read it, um, but things like economic stability, employment, income, expenses, debt, all those things, the neighborhood, the type of environment you're growing up in, housing, transportation, safety, parks, all these things make a huge difference in your health. You think about kids growing up in certain areas where they put bus depots in or trucks are routed in those areas because those people who are poor maybe can't fight as much. And so it affects things like air quality and things like asthma rates and hospitalization rates for asthma. Education, food, community and social context, and then there's the healthcare system. But because there's so much of, like so many things impact health, you can sort of think about like, well, you know, what's my vocation or what's my passion and how can I sort of like work in those areas? And that is actually something that contributes to health. Um, that is something that can really make a big difference. If you go to the next slide, you know, this is just about impact of different factors on the risk of premature death. If you look at the healthcare, it's actually 10%, you know? Um, which is actually um, the smallest in the area. Um, and social and environmental factors is actually 20%. So just think about the potential impact that you can have in that way. So the second thing was social stuff, um, social step, and that's to save families. And we would highly encourage you guys, if you've been thinking about it, haven't really signed up on the uh, list that's outside at the what's next table, I would encourage you to really sign up because uh, that is kind of what Safe Family does. You know, it, uh, they partner you with families that are in crisis, that are struggling through various things, whether it's environmental um, or food security, and um, as you are assigned to be their neighbor and to care for them. So that would be uh, definitely one, st uh, the social step we would encourage you to take. And lastly, the structural step is what uh, Keith was getting at. You know, there is, how can we be more aware about our neighbor's health and well-being? Um, you don't have to be a doctor to care about health. You don't have to be in the healthcare profession to care about health. So. Um, in New York, particularly, how can we cause less stress to others? Uh, how can we create a healthy environment for our neighbors? Like what kind of food choices we're doing in our parties? Like what kind of activities are we planning to do together? So the summer Sabbath, hiking, that sounds amazing. Um, you know, any running groups, like you know, what kind of things can we do to improve our health together as a community? Um, and visiting and listening to those in difficult situations, you know, one of the biggest thing that the Samaritan had to face was an interruption in his day. You know, he was going about his business and had to take care of this person, not only in his time and effort, but also his financial resources. So, like, how can we be listening to those around us and being um, allowing those interruptions to um, speak on how we can care for um, our neighbors or the people that God is putting in, in our steps. Um, and lastly, uh, being aware about where, uh, you know, uh, where and how those who are underserved and uninsured are being cared for. So one of the things that Keith said was um, when we were talking about this is 
talking to your own doctors, like, oh, so do you guys take any uninsured or, you know, just making the issue, uh, bringing it into awareness, you know, like who is, how, how do you guys provide care? Do you care for this particular population? And questioning and thinking about it together with your own healthcare providers um, that might push certain buttons and um, cause them to think about the issue if they are completely uh, tuned against it. Awesome. Guys, can we give it up for Dr. Keith and Sharon Chu? Here's what I invite you to do. Stand to your feet with me. If you're serving communion, go ahead and come on forward. Close your eyes and take a deep breath in. It's easy I know if you're maybe with us uh, for the first time today, it's easy to ask questions and wonder like, whoa, is this, is this church? Is this is what followers of Jesus are about? But as we talk about all the time, as they just talk about the ministry of presence, presence is spiritual and presence is also physical. You can't be present from afar. So when we come to this space, what Jesus is getting us to is a mindset and a heart that knows that there are no questions that will be answered outside of his love for us and our love for him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That is first and foremost. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So as we come to the table, which is what we do every Sunday as a reminder that none of this matters unless Jesus has first and foremost offered his love to us. As we come to this table, would we allow the Holy Spirit to maybe offer one or two thoughts, ideas, something that triggered uh, in, in Dr. Uh, uh, Sharon and Keith's presentation, maybe something that comes to mind Whatever it may be, will you allow God to speak to you and invite you into a deeper relationship with him and with the neighbors that we live among? A couple directions. Parents, if you'd like to include your children in communion, which you can, they're upstairs in the classroom. Just go check them out and then come right back down. We have four stations, two in the front and two in the back. Go to whichever one is closest to you. Take the, the wafer. It is a vegan, gluten-free, it's good for tree nut allergies, so hopefully everyone can participate who wants to. Dip it into the cup. You can pray, you can go back to your seat, and think, meditate, whatever you want. And last but not least, we say that the table is a symbol of our heart's confession that Jesus, Jesus has, was the good Samaritan to us. When we were still enemies of God, he came and bandaged our wounds. He came and put oil and wine on us. He said, whatever it costs, pay it, I'll pay it. So we receive that care from him and we go and offer it to the world. So will you come to the table? Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.